Landon's going to lead us in our time in God's Word today. So if you've got your Bible, you can get that ready. If you've got a phone with the Bible app, that's almost as good. You can uh, cue that up and uh, spend a little time in God's Word. Thanks, Ron. It's good to uh, be with you again this morning. As uh, Ron said, we're going to be starting a new series in the book of Exodus. And so I'm looking forward to that. It's personally my favorite to just walk through uh, a book of the Bible. Certainly don't think it's the only way or necessarily the right way, but it's an enjoyable way. And so we'll be in the book of Exodus. If you have uh, a Bible, we'll begin in Exodus chapter 1 in in just a couple of moments. I was kind of joking earlier with the first service. If you've been with us for a while, you maybe remember our uh, series through the Gospel of Mark. Took a few years, and then Ron got here, helped us close that out. If Ron wasn't here, we'd be in Exodus for like the next 40 years, but Ron's here, so it's just 20 weeks, so that'll be slightly better. Uh, today we'll go through uh, chapter 2, verse 10. Before that, though, I kind of want to just set the stage for what we'll experience in the book of Exodus, seeing we'll be spending a little bit of, of time there. There's some themes and, and different things we need to understand, so... As you look at the scriptures, it's a collection of of 66 different books, and you can read them all individually and and gain a lot, especially if you turn to uh, the the New Testament. You could open up one of the the gospels or letters written in the New Testament and gain a ton of wisdom and understanding about who God is and what his intent is for our our lives, and that's good. But you really just can't understand the scriptures, the, the way they're intended and to the depths and really brilliance that God has provided in his word if we skip these first two books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus, provide this really amazing foundation. I honestly view it as, as kind of a key. It's the, the gateway into understanding so much of the scriptures, and you can get a lot of good without it, but it just isn't the same. You don't see the whole picture that the, the scriptures provide. And so there's a few themes we need to understand with that in mind before we, we jump in. The, the first is this. The scriptures tell the story not of you and I. The Bible is not the story of humanity. The Bible is the account of God's relationship and his faithfulness to us from cover to cover, an unfaithful people and a perfectly faithful God. And it starts in in Genesis, and it's the account of God's faithfulness to an unfaithful family that follows him. And that continues in the book of Exodus. It's the, the account of a really brilliant, good God's perfectly loving and good plan for the world. Uh, the, the way we might think about what we're going to see in Exodus is this. There's going to be both internal and external opposition to God's good and perfect plan for us as humanity and for the world as a whole. By external opposition, I mean wars and kings and natural disasters and sickness and death and external forces. By internal, which is actually the the more powerful opposition, what I mean is really two things primarily. The selfishness of we as humans, we are often willing to make others pay a significant price for us to get what we want. And the arrogance of we as humanity. We're, We're so arrogant, and that can come across in different ways. It can be kind of boisterous and out loud, or it can be more quiet in the form of insecurity. Either way is arrogance. But our arrogance means that we pursue controlling life 
rather than practicing depending on the only one who is actually in control. And so there's these internal and external forces throughout the scriptures. What we'll see, though, especially in the book of Exodus, is this really good news that no internal, no external force can stand up against God's faithfulness and his plan and his love. And so uh, that's one key thing that we're going to see, that Yahweh God is perfect, that he is in charge, and that at the end of the day, he always wins. And when I say Yahweh God, that might uh, sound familiar to some of you. For some of you, you might be like, what in the world is that word? Yahweh is the name that God gives to himself, actually for the first time in the book of Exodus. God, those three letters in our English language, G-O-D, is just a title, just like I am a human, or I am a dad. Those are titles, but my name is Landon. God is a title for Yahweh. And Yahweh then has so much more significance and meaning and depth and history for who God is as a person than just referring to him as God. And so we're going to spend a lot more time talking about that name, talking about this person throughout. But I just wanted to let you know, if you hear me say Yahweh, that's what I'm referring to because that's how he refers to himself Before we do dive in, one more thing I I want to do. I had the privilege uh, a couple of years ago of spending some uh, time. I had lunch with a guy named Tim Mackey, and I got to spend some time learning from him in Portland. And he has an organization that he uh, co-founded called The Bible Project, and they put together these really phenomenal videos. They do the hard work of providing the contextual, linguistic, kind of cultural background and foundation on the scriptures. Almost any time I'm going to read or start reading a, a new book in the scriptures, I'm going to start with the Bible Project videos because they're short, but they provide a, a really helpful uh, foundation. So for two reasons, I'm going to show you a half of this video. One, if you're not familiar with the Bible Project, now you will be. It's a, a great tool and resource. They have more videos on Exodus as well that you can spend a little time interacting with. Uh, and two, I think it's just a great setup for us this morning. So go ahead and uh, Watch just two minutes of this video. The book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now, that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's Exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. 
Now, Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon, and God responds. God first turns Pharaoh's evil upside down as an Israelite mother throws her boy into the Nile River, but in a basket. And so he floats safely right down into Pharaoh's own family. He's named Moses, and he grows up to eventually become the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. So that's the first half of that video. Bibleproject.com or their app is really good. You can see the rest if you're kind of interested in having more context. But that kind of leads us to beginning in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. You can read along with me if you would like. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. The first six verses here really just function as a bridge for us, the reader, to know as the narrator is kind of connecting these dots that Exodus is a connection and the ongoing story about God's faithfulness to his people from Genesis. Genesis, as I mentioned earlier, was the story of this family that was just described. Exodus will now be the story of their extended family as it relates to God's faithfulness to them. If you really want to like do some groundwork and prepare for the next 20 weeks, it would be really helpful to read the book of Genesis over the next few weeks. It would take you two to three hours, or you could listen to it, but there's so much foundational character work the Bible describes about who God is that paves the way for what happens next. Verse 7, but the Israelites were fruitful increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. To, to really understand what's happening in verse 7, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where we'll read almost the, the same identical thing. We read this, Genesis 1, 28, describing Adam and Eve. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. Again, just for uh, the repetition of it, but the Israelites in verse 7 of Exodus 1 were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. Exodus 1 copies what is articulated in Genesis 1. And here's why. As God created the earth, he did so in one small little geographic location. We refer to it as the Garden of Eden. And he made it, and what did he describe it as? Very good, but it was just a small little part of, of the earth. You can almost think of it as if there was this massive 
blank canvas, and it's all white, except dead center in the middle is this garden called Eden. And in that garden, surrounded by this massive white empty canvas, God places Adam and Eve, and he made them and made a perfect world and said, it is very good. And then he gave them the first command, not to be spiritual or to receive salvation, but actually that they would go into the rest of the world, that they would multiply, have a lot of children, and send them out to fill it, to subdue it, to have dominion. The, the, the scriptures often refer to this as the cultural mandate. From this point forward, what God is saying is, here's this little dot on this blank canvas of very good. Now go make the rest of the canvas very good in your own unique way. God made us as humans to be creative, to be co-creators. He placed his image and likeness within us, his goodness, his love, his creativity. And so in essence, he's saying, go make culture, extend this canvas, color it in and make it beautiful, make it very good. That was God's plan in Genesis with Adam and Eve. It's his plan in Exodus with his family, his people continued. And it's his plan today for us, his people, as his church not to come into a building to, to gain a lot of spirituality or holy knowledge or anything of that sort, but to go out into the everyday stuff of life and to produce excellence. Culture making, if you will. Uh, Andy Crouch has a book called Culture Making, and he describes that verse, Genesis 128. It's really like how you get from a chicken to an omelet and a Sunday brunch or breakfast. It's really good to go from that. It's this reality that we're all wearing clothes. We're not naked right now. That came from all kinds of materials and designers and things to make good, very good products. You're sitting on chairs instead of the floor. This is all culture making. It's making the world very good, better, increasing, filling. I love people's creativity to go to a, a restaurant and see how a chef mixes all these different ingredients with specific techniques, and then you eat something, and you're like, this is incredible. That's the making of culture, the extending of the very good that you and I are called to extend as well. And the way that we're neighbors with the people that live next to us, the way that we share streets, and the way that you embrace your vocation and handle your finances, the way that you interact relationally, the number one, the very first command that God himself gives us is there's a blank canvas, and the dead center is God's presence and his creation, and it's very good. Extend the very good. That's what we read as a continuation of Genesis 1 and Exodus 1. Now you see why it's good that Ron's here, because we've made it seven verses and haven't really gotten very far. So verse 8, a new king who had not known Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Let us deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply farther. And if war breaks out, they may join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. So in essence, what has happened is God's desire in Genesis chapter 1 has come true. For God's people, very good has happened. They've grown. They've multiplied. He's been faithful to his promise to Abraham. And it's continuing. They're producing good and they're cultivating. But there's this really important shift that's happening that we have to go back to Genesis 12 to understand. Let's read that. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. God's speaking to Abraham, who's the uh, really founding father and patriarch of this family. He says this, I will bless those who bless you. 
I will curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. To this point, Egypt has been blessed. It's flourishing. They're cultivating. Good things are happening. They've really become the world power at that time and point. But because of Pharaoh's decisions here to now oppress and abuse God's family, there's going to be a shift. They will no longer be under the covering of God's blessing. They're actually removing themselves. That's key to understand. They're removing themselves from God's blessing, and they're actually stepping into his curse because of how they're treating God's people. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you is a theme we're going to see throughout the book of Exodus. We continue to read in verse 12. I love this verse. But the more that the Egyptians and Pharaoh oppressed them, the Israelites, God's family, the more they multiplied. The harder Pharaoh tried to take away the very good that God placed within his people, the more the very good multiplied. The, the, the more effort that Pharaoh put into extinguishing this people, the more the opposite result happens. Again, verse 12, but the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor and brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Plan number one is what has just happened. Pharaoh said, they're gaining too much power. They're gaining too much good. And both selfishness and arrogance, this internal opposition to God's good and loving plan, are getting in the way. And so Pharaoh says, we need to do something to contain their very good. Otherwise, they're going to take from our very good. Their power will outgrow ours. So he oppresses ruthlessly. And it does not work. Here's the, the theme for this morning. It falls under the umbrella of the internal and external forces, but more specifically this. The plans of powerful men have no chance when they oppose the promises of Yahweh God. The plans of powerful men, real powerful men, have no chance when they stand in opposition to the promises of Yahweh God, because he's always faithful. So his first attempt, plan number one, it fails. In fact, it doesn't just fail. It has the opposite of his intended uh, result. They multiply more. The very good continues. So he moves on to plan number two. We'll read it in, in verse 15. You're going to see this progression. He's going to get more desperate and more angry and more evil. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it is a daughter, she may live. Mass murder, a genocide of sorts, is now Pharaoh's new plan to deal with the very good that God's people have so that he can remove their power and maintain it for himself. And then verse 17 is just really glorious. The Hebrew midwives, however feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt told them. They let the boys live. Here's what we recognize in this. The Hebrew midwives look out and they have two people to consider, to observe, to know, two persons. Pharaoh, who has a lot of power, and then Yahweh God. And they fear Yahweh more than they fear Pharaoh. Don't misunderstand it. They feared both, and rightfully so, but they feared Yahweh God more 
Then they feared Pharaoh. Another word that's often used in the place of fear is to respect. They respected God, Yahweh, more than they respected Pharaoh. But, but fear is not the wrong word. There's a healthy fear of an almighty creator, an all-knowing, all-powerful person. I love that. In his attempt now to rid himself of God's people, two women, to the most powerful man in the world at that point, go, you know what? We don't fear you as much as we respect Yahweh God. Verse 17, the Hebrew midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had asked them. They let the boys live. Verse 18, so the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, kind of comically, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth for a before a midwife can get to them. It's kind of their way of not having to answer directly. Verse 20, remember, God will bless those who bless Abraham's family, and he will curse those who curse them. Pharaoh's receiving the impact of the curse in this moment, but look at the blessing part. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Verse 21, since the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. God blesses those who bless and places those who do good to his people under the umbrella of his blessing. And then there's this this curse that is there for those who unjustly oppose God's good plans. Plan one, oppression, ruthless uh, abuse to try to bring down and deflate and defeat God's people does not work. Plan two is also met with failure. He goes to murder and says, I'm going to have all the midwives murder the Israelite baby boys. That does not work. Failure is becoming this pattern for Pharaoh. And so as that happens, the degree of his depravity and evil and anxiousness, so lengths that he's willing to go to get what he wants. Notice I said earlier, we will do anything often. We will put any cost necessary on others to get what we want. And Pharaoh is the epitome of that. It gets extended now here in verse 22. Pharaoh then commanded, not just the midwives, all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. That's such kind of almost flowery language for what is actually happening. He is commanding everybody in this nation to take young babies who are crying and have no control, they're completely susceptible and dependent on others to care for them, to grab those baby boys and to chuck them into a river to drown. This is extremely ugly and horrendous, and we need to take that in. This is one of the best things about the Bible, is that it does not hold back. It does not pretend that life is all daisies and roses and happy. It's not. There's a lot of real ugliness then, and there's a lot of real ugliness today in our own lives, in our own worlds. And so we can know that God understands that. This is not some fairy tale. Pharaoh murdered by means of drowning a whole lot of boys under two years old. Here's why that matters. Here's why I point that out. Because a lot of really awful things are about to happen to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian people. And if we look at that in an isolated context, we might go, how can a good and loving God do this? Well, our God is merciful and he's gracious and he's patient and he's forgiving. But there is a point, thank God, when he says enough is enough and he will, with power, bring about justice where oppression has happened. And so we need to remember this about Pharaoh's character because later it's going to come back into play. 
The plans of powerful men are nothing when they stand in opposition to the promises of Yahweh. Now we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 10 of chapter 2. Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him and she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch, she placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. Seeing the basket among the reeds, she sent her slave girl to get it. When she opened it, she saw the child, a little boy, crying. She felt sorry for him and said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, should I go and call a woman from the Hebrews to nurse the boy for you? Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. There's so much irony packed into these 10 verses. We could spend a long time on these 10 verses, but we'll do it in about two minutes. For starters, Pharaoh's plan is to rid his land of the whole next generation of baby boys because he does not want them to form an army and certainly any really capable leaders to guide this people against Pharaoh. And so he plans this whole mass murder thing. In the midst of that, though, God's plan, Moses, to lead his people, survives. Not only does Moses survive, he's able to be nursed by his own mother in her own home. Not only does he survive and is he able to be nursed by his own mother, she gets paid to nurse him. That doesn't happen today. You don't get paid to nurse your own children. But just to kind of throw this out in Pharaoh's face, his mom gets to nurse him and get paid to do it. Not only does he survive, not only is he nursed by his own mother, not only does she get paid to do so, but then he is raised under Pharaoh's own roof. Here's what that means. That all the boys that would be adopted, right, as his son, are going to be groomed as they're grown to be the next great leaders in this family and for this nation. So within his own household, Pharaoh is raising and grooming Moses to one day become the leader that will bring Pharaoh down. This is where the scriptures are incredible Not only is God going to defeat Pharaoh, but along the way, for our sake, this is key, this is for our sake, God is going to show just how well he's thought this through, just how much he knows the details of what is going on and how little control we and any powerful person in the world actually have. There's real power in this world. There's real people that do real horrendous, atrocious things. But again, in case we're not getting it yet, the plans of powerful men are nothing when standing in opposition to the promises of Yahweh. We're going to continue to, to see more as we dive deeper into this series in, in book of, the book of Exodus, this umbrella theme that there's going to be external opposition. We talked about some of that today. The the second half of Exodus is a lot more about the internal 
opposition against God's good and loving plan for the world and for us. We see that the plans of, of powerful men, real powerful men, are nothing when they stand in opposition to God's promises. But there's this deeper, more significant truth and goal at the heart of Exodus. I love how Albert Bayless in his book, From Creation to the Cross, describes this. He's referring to the book of Exodus, and he says this. For it, Exodus, recounts not simply a spectacular miracle or even a score of them. There will be a lot of miracles that happen in this book. But a revelation of Yahweh, a revealing of a person, the God named Yahweh, the true God. The goal of God's activity here is to have his people learn to know Yahweh. That's my prayer for us as a church family in this series. Not that we'd memorize all the miracles and know the Ten Commandments. Not that we would just enjoy a pretty dang spectacular true story. But that we would get to know the person behind it all, Yahweh God. That we would have him revealed to us by the power of the Spirit and that he would lead us. That we would intimately walk with Jesus through the everyday stuff of life, recognizing that he and he alone is truly in control. This good God loves us deeply. Let's go ahead and pray. Yahweh, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that who you are is love, that you love us deeply and care for us. Lord, I request today for everyone in this room, for our our church family as a whole, though we don't deserve it, you would grace us with knowing you more that this knowledge, intimate, personal, real knowledge, not just informational knowledge, this experiential knowledge of who you are would guide every part of our lives. We love, to, we love you and look to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, this amazing God that we have just wants to meet you right where you're at. I'm wondering if maybe you're facing some opposition today. Maybe it's external, it's the loss of somebody, it's a tough relationship, it's a job thing, it's maybe it's internal opposition, maybe it's a personal struggle or some weight you're carrying. But I think what I love about communion, this time that Jesus has given us to remember him and his work is it's that tangible reminder that God's a rescuer and he sees us in our opposition. There's a great Exodus pattern throughout the whole of scripture, really throughout all of history. And the pattern is that God hears us and sees us in our struggle, in our opposition. And then he initiates a rescue mission to deliver us. And he often does that through a person. In Exodus, he's going to use Moses in a pretty special way. You fast forward to the person, capital P, of Jesus. And how God floods through the person and the work of Jesus is phenomenal. There is opposition in Exodus from Pharaoh. There's opposition in the New Testament from Herod. And in both cases, there's an onslaught of a killing of baby boys. And Joseph gets the word from the Lord and sends the family with Jesus down to Egypt 
ironically, to escape that opposition. You know, God can use any sort of means to deliver us. But in a spiritual sense, he has delivered us from eternity without him. He's delivered us from sin and death through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's something only God can do. And so as we have time to spend communion together, it's really that time for you and Jesus to connect. I'll encourage you here in a moment to go up either side of the stage and grab the communion elements, or there's some in the back there. And you can take these back to your seat and take on your own. And you'll find the elements there that represent the sacrifice of Jesus, the love of Jesus for you. And we're called to remember him. The cracker represents his body, which is broken for you. And the juice represents his blood that was shed for you. I encourage you just to take a moment, go back to your seat with the elements and just keep your opposition before the Lord in prayer. But more than that, see Jesus in the midst of that opposition. See him coming to rescue. See what he's already done for you and then what he can do for you going forward. You're not alone in whatever opposition you're facing today. Please remember that as you spend time with the Lord. And so, Father, we just thank you for the gift of Jesus and his perfect sacrifice. We don't take it lightly. We remember him today. We remember your work today. And we ask God to remind us of just how close you are, that you are with us. You are our conqueror, our king, our victor, and our friend. You are our rescuer. So we're looking to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. With that, my name is Nate Huss. I'm one of the team members here. Thanks so much for joining us. If this is your first time, welcome. Glad you're able to tune in. Uh, if you want to jump over to restorationaz.org to learn a little bit more about who we are. And um, yeah, we say this every time, but we mean it. Remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.